So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 8, and we'll get started in our study today. Father God, we just want to come before you now and continue our, our worship of you through the studying of your word. And Lord, our prayer would be, God, would you speak to us now through your word? God, would you just uh, reveal to us your heart for us according to your word? And, and just, Lord, would you just show us, reveal to us Jesus in this chapter? Lord, the Bible says that the, the volume of the book is written about Jesus. Lord, we want to see Jesus. We want to be like those Greeks that came to Philip saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. So that's our request. Lord, would you minister to us now? We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 8. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with them on the ark. So, right off the bat, it says that God remembered. It's not like God forgot about Noah. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. It's actually impossible for God to forget anything. The Bible teaches us that God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen before it even happens. And you know what? I know that I go fast through these Bible verses. When we get in the, the church, we're going to have them um, there so we can speed through them. But um, right now, make sure you're writing them down. Make a note of them and go back to them. But Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So what we learn from this verse is that God knows everything from the beginning of time. He knows everything right now. From the beginning of time, he's in a constant ever-present now. He's not affected by time the way we are. You know, there's not, you know, uh, sunrises and sunsets there on God. But he knows everything. He tells us, this verse tells us that he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Nobody is going to, you know, get in the way of him accomplishing his will. His will is going to be accomplished. Nothing, no one is able to keep him from completing in your life, you know, the good works that he's begun. There's nothing, there's no one that's able to keep him from accomplishing his good pleasure towards you. And boy, that's so encouraging to me. Acts 15 verse 8 says, this is a, a mind-blowing verse to me, known to God from eternity are all his works. From eternity past, God has known everything that he would ever do from the beginning of time. David said, and, and uh, this is the way I feel, Psalm 139 verse 6 says, such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It's high, I can't contain it. I mean, just trying to figure out, you know, what God is aware of, when he's aware of it, and how he's aware of it, it's just, how does it all work out? I don't know. That's what makes him God. God's knowledge is so great. Uh, he knows the outcome of every possible situation, right? Every possible scenario. 
You could lay it out. He would know the outcome. And we actually see this displayed. If you want, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 23. While you're turning there, what's going on is David is running from King Saul. And while he's running away, the Philistines, they come down and they attack uh, Kila. Kila, Kila. And after delivering Kila, Saul got word that David was down there. So David, he poses this hypothetical um, scenario to God. And we see it in 1 Samuel 23, verses 10 through 12. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that uh, Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O God, O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my hand into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. And you got to see this for what it is. I mean, it's amazing. This never actually happened, right? David, he says to God, eh, you know, if I stay here, these guys going to turn me over to Saul. And God says, yes, if you stay here, it's hypothetical. If you stay here, the result will be they will turn you over to Saul. So David, he, he flees for safety. The event never happened, but God knew what would happen if it did happen. You know, not only does God know everything, you know, he, he knows everything that would happen in, in an infinite number, an infinite possibility of scenarios. I mean, that's the God we serve. It's important for, for uh, it's impossible, it's important for us to understand that it's impossible for God to forget us or to forget anything for that matter. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Gary, hold on. I mean, you just said Sunday, last Sunday, Gary, you said that if we confess our sins to God, that he forgets them, he forgives us and forgets them. And now you're saying he doesn't forget anything. So which is it? Well, this is what it is. God does not forget, period. However, he limits himself to what he will remember. Okay, Hebrews 10, 17, God says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. God has chosen not to bring to remembrance our sins after we confess them. In essence, he forgets them. So both statements are true. God cannot forget, but in terms of our sin, he will not bring them to remembrance after we confess them. God chooses to deal with us as if uh, we had never committed those sins. I mean, such incredible good news. I, I hope that gets you guys excited because you know what? It gets me uh, wound up. I love it. You know, I have, a, I have a lot of things that God has forgiven me for. And he says, you know, Gary, I'm, you're justified. Just as if you never sinned. And you know, I'm not going to remember. I'm not going to deal with you in regards to who you are in a sinful state. I'm going to look upon you and deal with you who you are in Christ Jesus. So, you know, since God is infinite, though, and we're finite, we lack the ability 
ability to describe God in his divine character. So we're left to use these human terms. And so the idea here in this verse of that God remembers, what it means is it means to act on someone's behalf. It means to pay attention to or to fulfill a promise. So in this case, I think it refers to God who's constantly remembering Noah. And then right at the point of this verse, when God speaks this, God begins to work on Noah's behalf to bring a completion, a fulfillment of those promises that he made to Noah, that through Noah, uh, you know, he would, he would uh, preserve Noah through the flood and, and save Noah, his family, and the animal kingdom. Now, now, Noah and his family, they've been on the ark at this time for 150 days. I mean, right? Uh, and God begins to move on their behalf. Can you relate to how Noah might be feeling right now? Maybe um, you feel like you're just drifting. You know, maybe you feel like you're being tossed to and fro, you know, by never-ending waves of circumstance. Maybe you feel like you're floating aimlessly, you know, just upon troubled waters. Maybe, you know, there's no direction right now, no sense of direction in your life. And maybe you wonder, where is God in all of this? Maybe you feel forgotten today. You know, you need to be encouraged today with the understanding that God is never going to forget you and never going to forsake you. And, and you know, you're going to hear me say this a lot over our time together because this is such an encouraging thing to me. The idea that God will never forget us, never forsake us. It's so encouraging. His character, God's very character is love and faithfulness. He loved you when you were unlovable and he was faithful to you when you were faithless. And the Bible tells us that God is immutable. It means he's unchanging. So it means that if he's ever loved you, he always will love you. He always has loved you. You know, if, if he's always been there for you, or if he's ever been there for you, he's always going to be there for you because he's unchanging. He's immutable. He's always going to be there for you because he's faithful. That's his character, and he cannot change. And it may not feel that way always, but that's the way it is always. Sometimes it may feel like God has forgotten us, but he hasn't. And I mentioned this verse to you um, a Sunday or two ago, or a week or two ago, about God forgetting us. And it's worth mentioning it again because it's such a great verse. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Again, well, moms, is it possible? Like, hey, where is that kid? Well, hold on. You know, there he is. No, I mean, it's crazy. Like, you know, you're not going to forget when he's over. Hey, did I? No. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. Maybe it's possible that some woman, some place might forget. You know, okay, maybe. Yet I will never forget you, says the Lord. And then the next verse. I didn't mention this last time we talked about this. Verse 16 
it says, the Lord says, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Every time the Lord looks down and he sees the nail prints in his hands, he thinks of you. You know, that's, that's how dear you are. That's how precious you are. The Bible tells us that the Lord keeps your tears in a bottle. The Bible tells us that he knows the number of hairs on your head. You may feel forgotten, but you're not forgotten. The, the Lord is there. He's right there with you. He's always there with you. He never leaves your side. He's in the boat with you because he loves you and because he's concerned for you. Verse 1 continues, says, And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. Before the flood, there was that vapor canopy we talked about. There, It's enveloping. It's in, uh, you know, the earth. It's in that atmosphere. And somehow, you know, God let it go. It condensed. It collapsed, whatever. Causes deluge to come down on the, the earth. And then those uh, fountains of the deep, they were broken up and, and brought up. And that was the flood. But prior to the flood, that uh, vapor canopy, you know, allowed the atmosphere, allowed the climate of the world at that time to be very tropical. There were no polar ice caps. In fact, the fossil record in those polar regions indicate that it was a lush tropical forest um, there in the polar regions. And as a result of this vapor canopy collapsing, condensing, you know, the, the rain just coming down on the earth, what happened was cold areas and hot spots after the flood were able to develop, they begin to develop. And when the warm air hits that cold air, it produces wind. And it's the beginning of climate change that we start seeing here. The changing of the climate, the evaporation process begins. The water is beginning to recede. And you know what? As the water recedes, it changes the the topographical contour of the, the land, you know, because water changes things in a way only water does. It creates that erosion. The landscape is just being changed. And so that's what's happening literally. That's what is occurring physically. But isn't it interesting in this verse to notice that the Hebrew word for uh, wind is ruach. Right And Ruach, many places in the Bible, is translated spirit. So here we seem to be seeing a repeat of Genesis 1-2 when the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And he seems to be repeating that act now as he's separating the dry land from uh, the waters. Verse 2, The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. So Noah and his family, they've been on the ark now 157 days. They, were, they entered the ark. They waited seven days. It rained for 40 days. And then 110 days, uh, the water prevailed, Right? The prevailing water then after 110 days began to recede and the ark come to rest on the mountain of Ararat. And that's what we read in the next verse, verse 4. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, 
on the mountains of Ararat. Now, listen. Verse 4, chapter 8 of Genesis, verse 4, it happens to be one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, it seems kind of random. You know, why would the Holy Spirit point out this particular day? This is the day the ark rested on the mountain of Ararat. Why would the Holy Spirit, like, indicate the day? Well, when you dig into it, you find something that I think is is rather amazing. If you go forward in the narrative of the nation of Israel, you come to Exodus chapter 12. And the Jewish people, we need to understand this, the Jewish people have two calendars, right? They have a civil calendars, which um, were the official calendars of kings. They use them for childbirth. They use them for contracts. But in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord tells Moses, He's giving Moses instructions about the Passover. He says, this month shall be your beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So a new calendar was created right here. Now this is the religious calendar. So the Jewish people, they have a, a civil calendar and they have a religious calendar. And the seventh month of the civil calendar becomes the first month of the religious calendar because of the importance of the Passover. And as you continue to read in Exodus 12, you read there that on the 10th day of the month, the Jewish people were to select a lamb. They were to select the Passover lamb. And the lamb was to be spotless. It was to be without blemish. It was to be a male in its first year, or in other words, in the prime of its life. And the lamb was to be kept for four days. These are all instructions there in, in um, you know, the first five, six verses of Exodus 12. But the lamb is to be kept for four days. And it's during this time that the lamb is to be examined to make sure that it's spotless and without blemish. And then on the 14th of the day, or the 14th of the month, the lamb was to be slain. It was to be killed, it says, at twilight. Or literally, the literal meaning of at twilight is between the twilights, okay? So it's that time that the sun um, begins to set, you know, 3 or 5 p.m. to dark. That's between the twilights. And the blood was to, uh, to be applied on the lentils and the doorpost. You guys know this. And it's interesting. It's to be on the lentils. The blood is on the lentils and the doorposts. I mean, it's, it's a cross, a lintels and the doorpost. So anyway, it's to apply there. And then the reason why, of course, again, you know, this is when that angel of death came through. He would see the blood applied to the doorpost of the house. He would pass over uh, that house, sparing the firstborn in that house. This all happened for the Jews on Shabbat. It was Saturday, the 14th of the month. So the first month, Passover, right? The 10th day, you select the lamb. The 14th day, you slay the lamb and you apply the blood. By the way, the households of the Egyptians that didn't have the blood, well, the angel didn't pass over. And the firstborn of those families, they were slain. And, and it happened... For them, because they measure time the way we measure time, 
Jews measure time sundown to sundown. That's a day. But the Egyptians measure time the way we measure time, midnight to midnight. That's a day. The Passover for the Jews occurred on the Shabbat, Saturday the 14th. But for the Egyptians, it occurred on Friday the 13th. This is why Friday the 13th is an unlucky day, because we're on the Egyptian side of this calendar. The, 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 it's a Bible story. It comes from the Bible. I find those things so intriguing. Well, if you go a little further in the Bible, you come to Joshua. Um, in Hebrew, Yahshua. In Latin, Jesus. And you read in Joshua 4.19 that it's on the 10th of the month that Joshua and the, the children of Israel enter into the promised land. And all of this is a foreshadowing of our Savior, Jesus, and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the first month, right? The, the very day the Passover lamb was to be selected, Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem, his triumphal entry. And then for the next four days, if you read the text carefully, man, Jesus is tested. For the next four days, he's tested by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And they test him to ensure that our Passover lamb is without spot, without blemish. Four days later, on the 14th, Jesus is crucified. Our Passover lamb is nailed to that cross, slain in the prime of his life. I used to think, you know, yeah, he was 33 years old. I used to think, dang, man, I mean, he's kind of old. <laughs> now, I think, you know what? He was just a kid, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, it was in the prime of his life. Jesus hung there on the cross, bearing the sins of the world on the 14th of the month. Afterwards, he was buried. Three days later, he's resurrected. Three days later, on the 17th of the month, Jesus rose again from the dead. And we enter into his rest through the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our faith rests on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. But Paul also wrote to Galatians, the church of Galatia, Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but the resurrected Christ is the inference. The resurrected Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, I, I don't have to try any harder to be a, a good Christian boy, you know. I just need to surrender to the risen Savior who lives in me to experience His fullness of rest, His fullness of joy, His fullness of peace. Jesus said, because I live, you will also live. And I can rest in the promise of eternal life because of his resurrection from the dead. I can rest in the promise that the resurrected Christ will one day return again and take me to be uh, with him, take me home uh, to heaven to be with him for eternity. Jesus said, 
Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And by the way, all the yous in these verses are singular. It's not you, you guys. It's you, singular. It's you, Bernie. It's you, Dennis. It's you, Tricia. It's you, Marta. It's you, singly. I hope you guys are watching too so you can hear your names. But uh, anyway. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Noah, who, by the way, his name actually means rest, right? Noah's ark rested on the 17th day of the seventh month. It's all a prophetic foreshadowing of the rest that we experience through the resurrection of Jesus our Passover lamb. I mean, it's amazing to me to discover these pictures, to see, you know, what the Holy Spirit has just hidden under the, the surface of these Bible studies, just waiting for students of the word to find them, to dig them out. You know, those that diligently seek the Lord, they're the ones that see these things. We need to be in the word. You know, there's a number of these hidden gems throughout Genesis and boy, I tell you, I, I'm excited. I can't wait to discover them with you. Verse 5, And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the top of the mountains were seen. So it's been uh, another 74 days. It's 224 days total. Noah and his family, they're beginning to see the tops of the mountains. And it would appear that through this description that the ark rested on the very highest mountain there, Mount Ararat, uh, the highest mountain of that range, somewhere in the neighborhood of 17,000 feet. I think it's just shortly below 17,000 feet. And the reason why we can assume that is because after these 70, um, 74 days pass, they begin to see the other mountain tops, right? It's another indication that this flood, it just wasn't a local flood. If it were, how did the ark get on top of this mountain? Uh, again, some 17,000 feet. And I'll just throw a little history uh, your way right now. The Greeks, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, all of them traditionally say that the ark is on Mount Ararat. Josephus, the Jewish historian who is writing to record Jewish history for the Roman government, uh, he writes about the ark being on Mount Ararat. Marco Polo writes about the ark being on Mount Ararat in the 13th century. Marco Polo visited St. Jacob's Monastery uh, where they showed him wood that they claimed to have been taken out of the ark on Mount Ararat. Traditionally, it's always been viewed that Mount Ararat is there in Turkey. Interestingly enough, 1917, some Russian aviators flying over the mountains in that area. You know, after an extremely long, hot summer, they discovered what they described as, quote, the hulk of a gigantic wooden ship encased in ice about the 14,000 foot level on Mount Ararat. After the results of this sighting, there were expeditions that were um, assembled and what happened, unfortunately, is the Bolshevik Revolution 
uh, began right about this time. So those expeditions were called off. But the pilots later, they escaped from Russia to Canada and all the pilots, everybody that was on the flight, you know, they documented what it is that they saw that long, hot, hot summer day. And they saw, quote, a huge boat there on the ice. And as a result of this particular report, the French explorer Francis Navarro put together this huge expedition. It was called In Search of Noah's Ark. And afterwards, he describes in a book entitled I, The Ark, I Touched It. He describes his, uh, his expedition and he claims to have brought back wood that was from the ark. Now, there's never been an expedition that has been made that's been able to prove the, the existence, to prove the discovery of Noah's Ark. But actually, more and more expeditions are being mounted with more and more sophisticated instrumentations. Um, so, you know, I kind of think because the ark was, uh, you know, it was pitched inside it out, it's now in this encased in ice. I think it's well preserved and I think it's going to be discovered one day. Personally, I mean, it's just what I think. You know, nothing to back it up. It's just a, a thought that I have. And it will be, when it's discovered, it will be the greatest archaeological find in the world. It will prove the Genesis account of the flood. However, I think even when faced with proof, evidence of the truth of the Bible, you know what? Still people will refuse to listen. They just, they just refuse. Don't confuse me with the facts. It's going to be either that or they'll begin to worship the ark instead of the one true living God. Um, boy, ask me sometime about Tina insulting. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a funny story. She didn't insult anybody. But you know what? Uh, in Bruges, in Belgium, ask me a story about uh, the artifact. She kind of did upset a priest quite a bit. But anyway, so it came to pass, verse 6. At the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Now, I'm sure Noah's ready to get off this boat. It's been 264 days now that they've been um, held up in this ark. And I imagine, you know, starting out, you know, Noah's wife, she's super excited, you know. Uh, it's going to be an adventure, you know. And she, she uh, keeps everything clean. She's sweeping the deck. She's picking up after Noah and the kids. But now, 264 days into their cruise, you know, the animals are smelling pretty bad. And, uh, you know, I imagine when Noah opens that window, I can just hear uh, Mrs. Noah saying, praise the Lord, right? I mean, Noah's wife, by now, she's probably just been worked. She just says, mama wants to get off the boat, okay? So, I mean, just imagine. In my mind, I just see the monkeys, you know, they're playing, they're playing tricks on her. Every, every time she goes to sit down, they slip a banana on her seat, you know, and the goats are nibbling at the hem of her dress. She's got like birds trying to uh, you know, make a nest in her hair and she just doesn't even care anymore. I mean, she's just been spent. She's like Popeye says, it's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. You know, she wants off this boat and, you know, in my mind, I can just see Noah, right? I mean, he's kind of huddled up in the corner. Yes, dear. <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> he's just afraid of her right now, you know. But that's just the way I think, right? So you guys know what I'm talking about, you know. <laughs> anyway, verse 7. Then he sent out a raven, which 
kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up on the earth. Now, the raven, it's an unclean bird. The reason why is because it, it, it uh, eats dead and decaying flesh. It's a scavenger. And so this raven is happy to land on some bloated elephant kind of floating over there, um, maybe just lying on some beach someplace. And he's happy just to feed on the decaying flesh of that elephant, whatever. So the raven doesn't return to uh, Noah. Verse 8, he also sent out for himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, and the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Now please take note of this next sentence. It says, so he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return to him anymore. So now it's been 307 days. Noah and his family is on the ark. They're anxious to get off the ark. Um, and the clearest interpretation of these verses, right, is that Noah is sending out these birds and he's trying to determine, you know, how much longer they're going to be on the ark, how much uh, water is still left out there. He's trying to see how much of that water has receded. But there's also another beautiful picture being painted for us here, and it's a picture of salvation. The raven was happy to find a home among the debris that was probably floating there uh, on the water. He, he was happy to just be there amidst the dead animals floating there. He probably felt right at home there amongst the death and decay. But then Noah sent out the dove. Verse 9, But the dove found no rest, resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. Now, the dove is a clean bird. The dove is a bird having a totally different nature. And it's just such a beautiful picture here, I, I think. You know, it's, it's out of this saved vessel that these two birds go forth. And it's a picture of our lives. For those of us that, are, that have been saved, you know, within our heart, there dwells the clean and the unclean. There is within us an appetite for the things of the flesh, for the dead, decaying world all around us. And then there's this different nature that we have within us also, where there's no rest for us in the world. And it says, but he... But the dove found no resting place, so he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. The only resting place for this dove was in the ark. She went back to Noah to find the rest. And Noah here is a picture of Jesus Christ. Noah was a carpenter and he built his ark of salvation. Yet he's a picture of the greater carpenter of Nazareth who finished a greater work of salvation. It's a picture of how for the renewed, for those born-again believers, 
It's a picture of how there's no rest for us in this world. The only rest for us is being with the Lord. Notice it says, He put out His hand and took her and drew her into the ark to Himself. And you know what? That's what Jesus wants to do with each one of us. You know, He wants to take us. He wants to receive us to Himself. He wants to renew us. He wants to give us rest. He wants to draw us near to Him. And to me, this is just such a beautiful, such an awesome picture here. You know, our flesh has an appetite for that which is dead and decaying. But when we go after those things, we, we never find the satisfaction that we're looking for. We never find the, the rest that we're looking for in those things. You know, maybe you're like, you know, Tina and I. I can't tell you how many times we've gone to the movies thinking, you know, we're going to have a great night out. It's going to be awesome. We'll just be there, just relax, enjoy some uh, entertainment. And, and you know what? We go to the movies and all of a sudden, you know what? We're just disappointed for what passes as entertainment these days. The death and the decay of the world being displayed there up on that big screen. And you know what? We walk out totally unsatisfied. We don't receive the rest or the satisfaction that we were looking for when we went out to have a good time. The only place we find that rest is when we return to the Lord. And He's just waiting for us so that He can draw us into Himself. You know, we get away from Him, we get our eyes off of Him, and that's when we just wander around and just are restless. It's not until we look to the Lord that He draws us into Himself, and then everything's okay. He's just waiting to draw us to Himself, just waiting to draw us into His heart. And to me, it's such a beautiful picture of our Savior. And, and I just want to tell you right now, I, I honestly believe that God is reaching out His hand to some of you tonight. He wants to draw some of you very close to His heart right now. He sees the need for you to come near and receive rest. He wants to renew you. He wants to give you that rest. And my encouragement would just be go to Him, run to Him, turn to Him. You know, and be refreshed tonight. You know, just on your knees maybe right now as you're watching. Just cry out to Him. Be refreshed tonight. Just yield to Him and allow Him to reveal His heart to you. Eventually, the dove does go out, doesn't she? She does go out. Such a beautiful picture. You know, she goes out. When she goes out, she goes out into a new heaven, into a new earth, as it were. And one day, in a similar way, we're going to, you know, go out into a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be rest and fulfillment and just amazing satisfaction for us there. Man, I can't wait. Verse 10 again. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the morning, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, um, that the waters were dried up from the earth. 
And Noah received the, removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Now, Noah saw in verse 13 that, you know, the waters were dried up on the earth. It says, verse 13, indeed the surface of the ground was dry. Why do you think Noah doesn't just get off the ark then? Why does he wait? I mean, there's 57 days that occur between verse 13 and 14. And I don't know about you, but um, this is why I think he doesn't just get off the ark then. I've gone through hard times. You've gone through difficult trials. And if you're anything like me, you know, those prolonged storms of our life, those difficult times that we have to navigate. You know what? I'm not in a hurry to get out in front of the Lord. I've found safety in the Lord. I know it's safe with the Lord. Right here, right here where I'm at with the Lord. That's where safety is. And you know what? I, I want to make sure I never get out in front of Him. I don't want to step out before Him. I'm willing to wait for Him for instructions. And I'll tell you what, 41 years walking with the Lord, I've never regretted waiting on the Lord. But almost every single time I got out in front of the Lord, if not every single time, I've regretted it. You know, I've learned my lessons. I'm willing to wait. I'm happy to wait on the Lord. Lord, just open the door. Show me what you want to do. That's the safest place to be, just waiting on the Lord. And I can just tell you, you know, the leadership of this church, there's a lot of decisions that we're making that I encourage uh, the board and the elders, the leaders, hey, you know what, let's just wait. Let's just hear from the Lord. Let's pray. And again, uh, the 18th July, we want to start that prayer meeting where we can just wait on the Lord and hear from Him and see what the Lord will do with us as a church. Verse 15, Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go. And again, hey, let's stop right here because we see something that's worth noting here, something worth remembering. We see in verse uh, chapter, sorry, we see in Genesis chapter 7, remember we heard God say to Noah, come, right? And now he's saying to Noah, go. And that's the way it is with the Lord. He calls us to come to him, to learn of him, to um Give our lives to Him, to rest in Him. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are labor, or all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And after we learn of the Lord, after we've been filled by the Lord, after we've received from the Lord, He tells us that hey, now there's work to be done. He says, go. Matthew twenty eight. 18 and 19, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All authority, heaven and earth. And what does he do with that authority? He tells us to go with that authority. He says, Go, therefore, in light of this, in light of the fact that he has all the authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord's heart for us as a church. 
It's not just me as a pastor that's to do the work of the ministry. And I'm telling you, there are people in this town of Truckee that need Jesus. And I'm not going to meet them. You know what? God's placed them in your life. I'm not going to meet them probably until you bring them to church, right? So, you know, what do you do? Invite them to church. I'll meet them. But until then, you know what? God wants you to take a step of faith. He wants to do radical things on your behalf as you cry out to him and pray and just ask for open doors. And then you take a step of faith. You know what? Ask him, hey, can I pray for you? You know what I, the questions that I normally ask is, um, I ask him, hey, were you raised in a church? And you know what? Nine out of 10 times, they're going to say, yeah, I was raised in a church. Uh, and I, then I ask him, well, what happened that you no longer believe in Jesus Christ? And you know what? They'll tell you. Man, it just, it's an open door. And I promise you, if you'll do that, if you'll take steps of faith, if you'll ask to pray for people, if you'll just say, hey, do you know who Jesus is? And then just let them just talk to you. There will be an open door. And you'll be surprised of the conversations that will be started by just lovingly, caringly asking people where they're at with Jesus Christ. You know, it's my job to equip the church to be passionate uh, servants of Jesus Christ. It says in Ephesians 4, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some, to, uh, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. The pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's our job to go and to share what we have in Jesus with the lost and dying of Truckee and this world. Verse 16, God says, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. So if you do the math, what you'll find is Noah's been on the ark now for 377 days. I mean, it's a long time to be cooped up again. I just imagine Noah can't wait to get off the boat. I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. I mean, he probably can't wait to be back on dry land. But now you're in his shoes, okay? What are you going to do? What have you been thinking about doing after 377 days? Man, I can't wait to do what? What is it? You know, take a picnic, go take a hike, you know, stretch your legs, uh, go explore the, the new surroundings, you know. Um, what would you do? Man, 377 days, that's like a year and uh, 12 days, right? What would you do? Well, verse 20, we find out what Noah does. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Remember back uh, in previous chapters, right? Noah took seven of every clean animal. And the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark, what does he do? 
Man, he builds an altar and he worships God. He worships God through sacrifice. And it's something that we've been seeing up to this point in the book of Genesis. It's a repeated theme. The way to approach God is through the shed blood of the innocent in place of the guilty. So we see here Noah, he has such gratitude for God's work of salvation in his life. He has such appreciation and wonder uh, for God's greatness. The first thing he does is he worships. And, you know, in my, in my heart, you know, I imagine after this Bible study, there are those that are going to walk away and they're just going to be filled and they're going to worship the Lord. You know what? And they'll wake up tomorrow morning after this Bible study and they'll open their Bibles and they'll worship the Lord. But, you know, I also imagine that after this Bible study, there will be those who are thankful it's over. You know, they'll say something like, man, that Gary, he sure can talk. Man, I didn't think he was ever going to stop. You know, as soon as the Bible study's over, they're going to go grab something to drink and relax on the couch in front of the TV. And they'll wake up the next morning forgetting everything that they've heard tonight. You know, the first group will feel blessed and fulfilled because worship is a blessing to you and it honors God. The other group will wonder why nothing ever goes their way. The other group, you know, they'll say, man, it seems like nothing ever happens good in our lives. And this is what I think. If we make worship a priority in our lives, um, we'll be altered. It will change us. It will change who you are if you make worship a priority. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. You know, what an example Noah is for us. He walked with the Lord and enjoyed his presence. He obeyed the Lord in building the ark. He was a witness for the Lord. Uh, Peter says, 2 Peter uh, 2.25, that he was a preacher of righteousness. He waited patiently on the Lord while he was in the ark, waiting for permission to leave the ark. And once he left the ark, he worshiped God, right? And his worship blessed God. And don't you want that kind of testimony in your life? And that your, your worship just is a blessing to the Lord and your, your walk with Him. You know, I want that type of testimony in my life. I want to be a blessing to the Lord. And that testimony, it's available to every one of us if we will walk with Him, if we will obey Him, if we will witness for Him, if we will worship Him with our whole hearts. That testimony is ours. I don't think it's a hard thing to do. I don't think these things are difficult to do. I think it's a result of a close personal relationship with Jesus, which is available to, available to all of us, which is exactly what He wants, which is what He's willing to empower us to have. And in verse 20, we notice the offering that Noah offered. It was a burnt offering. And in the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament times, a burnt offering was an offering of consecration. 
The entire sacrifice was offered. Nothing was held back. It was completely consumed. And you know what? That's my prayer for this church. That's my prayer for us, that we would hold nothing back from the Lord, that we would be all in. Uh, you know, I want my life, I want our lives to be totally consumed by our precious Savior. You know, that's what we were created for. And I pray as a church, Lord, that, that we would have that type of heart. Because what's more pleasing to God than the smell of the sacrifice was the heart of Noah in his sacrifice. God wants our heart. And verse 22 says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Um, as a result of the flood, we start seeing this climate change, these ecological changes, as we said. We start seeing um, seasonal and temperature variations. And again, all of this probably is the result of the extinction of the dinosaur and other animals we find in the fossil record. They probably uh, went extinct relatively soon after the flood, um, as well as we see this dramatic decrease in lifespan of um, man and certainly of animals too, I'm sure. Um, but here, as we just, you know, close our Bibles and, you know, just turn our attention to the Lord now and just, I really want to ask you, where are you at with the Lord? You know, are you all in? Is there anything that you're holding back for you to control? You know, I, I hope not. Because if you'll do that, it's going to rob you from everything that God wants for you. It's going to rob you from, you know, just the joy that He wants to, you know, pour into your life. It's going to rob you of the Spirit. It's going to rob you of fulfillment. It's going to rob you of just... Everything you want as a Christian, if you hold something back for your own control, for you to maintain control of, man, it's going to shortchange you crazy ways, right? What if I told Tina, you know what? I'm all yours, baby. You know what? <laughs> all this is yours, Tina. <laughs> that would be a bad way to put it. You got to choose your words more carefully, right? But, you know, what if I just said, hey, sweetie, you know what? I'm all yours. Just not on Tuesdays. You know, on Tuesdays, there's this uh, uh, another woman that I spend time with. You know, what do you think she would say? You think she'd say, great. I mean, hey, I got you six out of seven days. I, how can I argue with that? You know, of course not. That's not what she's going to say. You know, if she said that to me, you know, I would not be okay with it. You know, I want all of her. I don't want to share her with anybody. I want all of her. And that's the way God's heart is for us. He's jealous for us, right? He wants all of you. He's not interested in part of you. He's not interested in, in Sundays and Thursdays. You know what? He's interested in everything. So I encourage you. I want to encourage you to really do some deep soul searching right now. You know, spend time with the Lord this weekend and just, man, go deep with Him and, and just determine where are you at with Jesus? Are you all in? You know, is there, is there a limit to your walk with Him or or you want to go as far as He wants to take you? You know, if you're not all in, you're getting ripped off by whatever it is that you're holding back from Him. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank You. Lord, I thank You for this church. 
Thank you for the heart of this church. Lord, it's so great to meet so many of the people that call this church home, to meet them Sunday in the park. Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful for each one of these uh, wonderful saints, Lord. And I pray as a church, Lord, would you work in our hearts? Would you work in our hearts that we would be all in, that we would end our prayers with, Lord, no matter what the cost. Lord, would, would you just work in our heart as a church in such a way that we're on our knees before you, waiting on you. Just whatever it is you're going to say, Lord, we're predetermined to be obedient to it. Lord, would you open doors for us to be a witness for you in this community and in the world, Lord. Father God, I know there are people in this community that need to hear about Jesus that I'll never meet. Lord, would you empower Lord, the saints of this church to be passionate in serving you and be passionate in telling others about Jesus, Lord. Would you use us for your glory? Lord, would you use our little fellowship for your glory, impacting a dead and decaying world around us, Lord? Father God, I ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost, be glorified in us and through us, Lord Jesus, I ask it in your name. Amen.